everyone. How are you? Good. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks to who are joining us online and special hi to our folks in traditions. Um, like Donnie said, it's been a minute since I've been up here. And so it's just an honor. It's an honor to get to share with you today. We are continuing our series playlist, Bring Your Heart and Voice, where we have turned our attention to worship, specifically our singing. We're calling on each other to lift our voices, to respond to God with praise, the honoring words of our voices to God, but also in worship, the offering of ourselves before him, our hearts. Playlist, bring our heart and voice. We see over and over again the command in Scripture to sing. Fifty times we're commanded to sing. Why? Why is that? What purpose could our singing have? We've shared over this series that we are wired for music. It's no wonder we're stirred by the opening score of a Marvel film, right? Or we're brought together singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch. Or we're devastated by our memories of that song we used to sing with a lost loved one. Music attaches to our brains. And when we sing and worship to God, joining with the choir of all creation, we are participating in something so much bigger than just us. Something so much bigger than our preference or song choices or how gifted the folks at the front may or may not be with the instruments. In worship, the way we see it in scripture, we have the opportunity to lift our voices and present our hearts before God alongside this big, global, ancient, and everlasting choir of God's people. It's no small thing. That's what we're doing in this series. Today, we're diving a bit more deeply into a tougher, more tender element of our worship, and it's suffering. It's heavy. It's way less fun than celebration that we looked at last week, right? Suffering is far less fun to talk about, but it's so vital for us. How do we hold our suffering and our worship? Can they belong on the same canvas? When you have faced suffering, how have you navigated that with God? Where have you seen people who sing through suffering? And how has that moved you? I think about Italy during COVID. Do you guys remember this? When they were performing from their balconies? How beautiful that was. How touching that was to those of us around the world. Or more recently, those singing in the basement shelters in Ukraine. Or this group of Ukrainian Christians singing in a metro station in Kyiv a few days before it was attacked by Russian troops. Take a listen. <laughs> The song roughly translates to Let My Prayer Flow, singing of forgiveness, salvation, and mercy. It's powerful. And more close to home, on Friday night, in this 
room, we had the honor of hosting a funeral for 18-year-old Ezra Black. He died two weeks ago after a journey with leukemia. And man, did he love Jesus. He was faithful to sing through his 14 months of treatment. We had music that he produced from his hospital room at Children's, actually playing before the service this morning. It'll be playing again in kind of like our outro music, but it's beautiful. There's something unique about raising our voices in times of suffering. We live in a broken world, and each of us will know suffering. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We all have our own trauma, however big or small, things that have happened to us that we can't quite process through or reconcile. It's a part of being human. Our bodies keep the score. We have systems in our brains to help keep us safe, right? Fight, flight, freeze. We've learned coping mechanisms to survive, some wise and good, others not so good. And then when we love deeply, we open ourselves to suffer deeply, to no relational suffering. We care. We'll see injustice. Our hearts will break. I hardly have to tell you this. Because we all know it. We all will know it. We will each face grief, pain, tension, stress, anxiety, disappointment. We will. I can't pretend to know in a room this size and with all of you who are watching online um, what you all have walked through, what parts of your life have known suffering. Many of you have experienced things I know nothing of, suffering I don't even have a reference for. And some of you may feel like you haven't had all that much just yet. Like your hardships haven't been um, as great or as devastating as that person you know down the street or the person sitting two rows up from you right now. Not everyone is suffering at the same depth or at the same time. What is suffering for a seven-year-old is nothing for you. You've already been there. You have perspective. They don't. But it doesn't change it for that kid. For this, I find the blanket definition of suffering Elizabeth Elliot coined to be quite helpful. She is one of my heroes, and she knew suffering. Her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, um, ate my lunch recently. (laughs) I highly recommend. But her definition is suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. That about covers it all, right? for maybe the more trivial broken washing machine or hour-long commute to the heavier life-altering crisis kinds of things. The diagnosis, the financial burden, the relational strife, coping with the accident, the infertility, the loss, the longing for a mate, having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. What does that look like for you today? And how do the suffering and the worship belong to each other? Can they? I've been learning quite a bit about suffering personally in the last year, and in a different way, the last five. But right before Christmas last year, I was diagnosed with a more rare and real aggressive form of breast cancer. Three weeks later, I started six months, 16 rounds of chemotherapy with 
immunotherapy. I had a double mastectomy in July. I'm currently doing radiation, and I have another six months of oral chemo to go after this and another surgery next year. I've been on a journey. Here's a few images and videos for you to see of that journey. catch Jeff Lucas wearing my wig. Did you see that? I also put it on Dick Foth. I had a great time with the whole wig bit. I have learned a whole lot. I've joined a club I never wanted to be in. Some of you understand that. I've been thrusted into a physical challenge as an otherwise healthy young person with no family history of cancer. It's been a real shocker, like a real hair blown back. Well, I have hair that can kind of blow back. It's like a whiplash kind of thing. A life-altering crisis. And I'm still in it. Now, I'm doing good. I'm wildly grateful. I do not believe that God gave me cancer. But he is certainly using it in my life. He allowed it. And he has been faithful to me every step of the way. I can see his fingerprints all over this season. I wish I had the time to tell y'all. And I'll just say, many of you have cared for us, Justin, Powell, and I, in just stunning ways. Stunning. I never wish crisis on anyone, but I do wish that you could know the kind of love and care that I have in the last year. I had a meal train for eight months. Eight months. I forgot how to feed my family, to be honest. Hot food doesn't just arrive at the door, right? For all of the porch drops and the gifts and the encouraging texts and the handwritten letters and the prayer of this community and being on the receiving end of it, it is stunning, you guys. Thank you. I've compared myself many times to George Bailey. You guys know George Bailey from the Christmas black and white classic, It's a Wonderful Life. The end of the movie, his brother raised the toast says to my big brother George, the richest man in town. And he isn't the richest in town, hence the movie, but, but he is because of his relationships. I am the richest in town. I am. But I've had to grapple with a new dimension of suffering, with my own human frailty, with a body that seems to have betrayed me. I've been brought more up close to my own mortality in a way that's not comfortable. I've grieved and experienced anxiety, fear, and pain like I have never known. 
So when we look today at our worship in and through our suffering, well, God has been teaching me these things squarely on the face. Now, a little fun fact about me. I spent years, the years um, of college and post-college doing youth ministry. I loved it. But because of that, I've known my fair share of obstacle courses, ropes courses. Do you guys know about these things? How many of you have ever done one of these? Yeah, okay. You know the harnessed-in situations, high up, um, you know, the swing, you have to climb the pole and jump to the bar. They're the team-building things, the things you do for the kids, right? There's always several points doing something like this when it gets sketchy, when you're tempted to say a curse word in front of the children, but you don't because you're a good leader, right? Mostly-ish. But it's at those points when you're harnessed in, but you don't realize the support that you have in that harness until you lean into it. It's got you. Maybe you know in your mind, but you're not totally sold in your gut. Like, is this legit? Is this going to hold me? Our moments of suffering are like that. It's gotten sketchy, God. You really got me? And to which he responds, lean into me. Lean into me. I got you. Our leaning in in the face of suffering, it's a game changer. It's a leaning in how we trust God through our struggles. I would submit to you that worship is one way that we do this. You see, we declare our trust in worship. Scripture gives us a whole lot of broken people who faced suffering of all kinds. We are in good company with folks who didn't know, um, they didn't understand, they had what they didn't want, they wanted what they didn't have, loads of them. One account I want to explore together today is an early church moment. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's such a powerful example um, that we're looking at it again. It's Paul and Silas. They are starting their ministry in Europe, and they're preaching the gospel in a way that was causing a lot of buzz. And some folks were not enjoying the disruptions that their ministry brought. In Acts 16, it says, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Some background here, they were part of an exorcism situation where a girl was freed um, who had been fortune-telling and making a ton of money for her traffickers. So the uproar and the changing of tides here had a financial element. It cost for them, for her, to be freed, and it had an upside-down kind of value to it. Um, Jesus always throws the power balance off, and for those in power, it doesn't really sit well. It goes on to say, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. The inner cell would have been the most secure cell, possibly a dungeon. So you can imagine it's been a bit of a rough day for Paul and Silas. Stripped, beaten severely, it says. Put into prison, shackled. In this culture, imprisonment was super shameful. It led to dishonor and to be stripped and flogged publicly only intensified this. So they are facing um, physical pain, stigma, shame, the unknown. Like, how does this play out? What's next? They have no control here. 
And I wonder what they felt. What would it have been like to be in Paul and Silas's shoes? What would we have done? How would we have responded? What do they do? In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. There's so much we can pull for just that verse. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. What? The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. That's wild. Miraculous. First to be bruised and bleeding, embarrassed and imprisoned, and their hearts turned to prayer and worship in such a way that changed the environment. Figuratively, it changed the environment as the other prisoners listened. The posture of Paul and Silas of worship and prayer, despite everything they went through, caused others to notice. And it changed the environment literally, supernaturally. Earthquake, prison doors opening, shackles loosening. (laughs) Powerful. I would have thought it was time to peace out, right? The Lord has spoken. She gone, right? But there's no jailbreak here. They stay. And the jailer and his family come to put their trust in Jesus. It transformed their lives. Excuse me. In the darkest moment, Paul and Silas prayed and sang. They declared their trust and their worship. Lean into me. Lean into me. I got you. To be a Christian is to put our trust in Jesus for yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's got us. We certainly will not understand it all. And trusting Jesus doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we want or hope for. When you don't see how it's going to go from where you're standing and you choose to place your trust in God, well, that's faith. Worship is a way we declare our trust, our faith, in God. So what then does suffering do to our worship? It seasons it. Suffering seasons our worship. What does that mean? This has a whole lot to do with our hearts. The worship, the singing part of our service is one way we offer ourselves before God. It's a powerful one for sure. We have a whole series dedicated to it, right? But worship, generally, we do this in all kinds of different ways, all throughout our weeks. It's not just the singing part on the weekend. It's much more. It's my life, actually. It's how I live my life, how I serve others, how I walk with God. That's the offering, actually. And sometimes the singing part of our church service, well, it can just be words, You can be really distracted, actually, about the song not being to your preference or liking. You can be preoccupied with how you sound, like you're performing, actually. It has very little to do with worshiping God. Or you could be making to-do lists for later. You can actually be cynical. There's a lot that can be going on. Nobody knows your hearts but the Lord. You can sing words and have your heart completely separated from what you're singing. My two-year-old started singing which is hilarious. 
He mostly has no clue what he's saying. It's the most endearing thing, but it's just words. It's a completely different thing to present ourselves, our hearts, before God as we sing, regardless of the song. You know what I mean there? Now, when you find yourself in a tender place, and you come before God there, when you choose to sing about the goodness and faithfulness of God through the landscape of your circumstances, through your wrestling and your doubt and your fear and your sorrow, or when you're struggling to sing it, but you offer yourself before God in that place, your worship changes, right? The weight is altered. It's seasoned. Worship throughout the Old Testament in many places is described as having a smell to it. Sounds weird, right? But often you see a sacrifice was offered to God and he received it as a pleasing aroma. Some liturgical churches to this day use incense in their worship gatherings to symbolize our prayers rising to God. I have found some of my most intimate moments with God have happened when I am the most afraid. When my faith has felt like a mustard seed, a teeny tiny seed. And I've gone to him there, through that place, through the hard place where trust is hard to hold, and offering our hearts and our emotions to God there with all the confused, frustrated, um, sorrowful feelings. It's there our worship is seasoned. There's a song for me that's been a picture of this. It's called The Story I'll Tell by Maverick City Music, and I want Matt and Mandy to perform it for you. The words are going to be on the screen for you to follow along. It's a very powerful song, and they're amazing. I'm excited for you to hear it, but... It's powerful because it's declared without any perspective. It's declared out of faith. It's sung from the ashes, believing and trusting God for what isn't seen from the current view of the lyrics. It's telling a story that could be told a different way, standing on and declaring trust that God didn't fail, that he's moving still. We're singing, oh, oh, oh. 
Waters you've parted, the waves that I. 
gorgeous. Gorgeous. It hits different, right? Suffering seasons our worship. I want to talk for a moment about lament. Lament is an opportunity for intimacy with God. What is lament? I don't think lament is something we talk about very often. And even as we've been in this series dedicated to worship, sometimes it can feel like everything needs to be like happy, happy, happy. You know? We have a deep abiding joy. Yes, absolutely. We have reason to celebrate always. But what about the other side of that spectrum? You see, there's an overwhelming precedent in Scripture to express our full range of emotion to God. Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's a prayer where we vocalize our protests to God. We ask two important questions. Where are you, God? And why did you allow this? There are entire psalms dedicated to lament, and they go hard. (laughs) Psalm 6, it says, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping. I drench my couch with tears. Or in Psalm 69, I'm worn out for calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. There's also a host of psalms that are vengeance psalms. They're pleading with God to destroy their enemies. Imprecatory psalms is what they're called. One piece of that from Psalm 3, strike all my enemies on the jaw. (laughs) Break the teeth of the wicked. It's like, punch them out, Lord. (laughs) Woof. But there's a precedent to take these emotions to God. God can handle your anger. He can handle your grief. I love the way that Dan Allender puts it when he said, the laments of the Psalms encourage us to risk the danger of speaking boldly and personally to the Lord of the universe. More than half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, which many of the Psalms are songs, actually. I wonder what the original melody to those ones were, right? Some of them would live more in like a Rage Against the Machine, Motley Crue, heavy metal kind of feel, right? Also, there's the narrative of Job, a man who intimately knew suffering. God allowed everything to be stripped from him. Family, community, wealth, health, all the things. And Job expresses his sorrow and anger to God. He lays it all out. He basically calls God a bully, which like, is that honoring? Is that allowed? (laughs) He asks God why. He demands that God answer him, and he does. There are four chapters near the end of the book of Job, chapters 38 to 41. They are beautiful. And they're a little sassy on God's part, I think. God asks Job things like, where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Now, God doesn't answer any of Job's specific questions. He instead offers himself and the mystery of his sovereignty and power over the universe. Often the answer to our why questions, why me, why them, why this, there's no intellectually satisfying answer on this side of heaven for those. But the presence of God, the sovereignty of God, the purposes of God that are over our pay grade, somehow it changes us. So God presents himself 
and his power before Job in a way that is amazing. And then God honors Job. He honors Job's process, all that complaining and anger and what sounded like a smidge not allowed on the dishonoring side. No, God honors him. God can handle your anger. He can handle your grief. And it's in those places where you can be yourself. You can be real. He knows you already, the real you. You don't have to fix yourself up before you come to him. He already came to us, pursuing us, dealing with all our brokenness through Jesus. We can come to him honestly, and we can invite him into our suffering. Lean into me. Lean into me. I got you. There's something unique about seasons of suffering. It's a promise. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Sometimes you can feel um, so connected to God in your darkest moments that when you're on the other side of whatever that thing was, like you kind of miss the intimacy with God. Do you know what I mean? That sounds weird. Like you wouldn't want to go back to that place, but you miss the nearness that you had with God then, right? Elizabeth Elliot said it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And C.S. Lewis said God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaking in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. There's a unique intimacy that can happen in our moments of suffering when we turn to God. Lament is an opportunity for intimacy with God. And the last point today is that worship anchors our suffering in hope. We have hope. We do not have to suffer or navigate life without it. On the last night before Jesus was crucified, he had the famous Last Supper with his friends um, and followers, his closest followers and disciples in the upper room. It was the Jewish Passover, a festival where the Jewish people recount the story of God freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And they participate in it in such a way that allows them to ponder and live into their story. And this time, Jesus gives new meaning to the rhythms of this festival. He explains to them what's coming. My body broken for you. My blood poured out for many. But they do not get it. Jesus knew what was coming for him and for them. He talked about his death several times with his disciples, and they never got it. It was unexpected. His followers had a different plan in mind. They thought it would play out a different way. Jesus dying was never how they wanted it to go. Jesus rarely spoke about his death without looking beyond it. He had purpose that his disciples just didn't understand. So as is customary for the end of Passover, they sing together. We see this in the account of Mark. If you look at the Last Supper, it ends with saying, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What they sing at the beginning of Passover is called, and the end of Passover, is called the Hallel. The first part they sing at the beginning, the second part they sing after the meal. That after part is actually Psalm 115 to 118. It is a chunk of singing. (laughs) But what added significance knowing what immediately followed. They would walk to the Mount of Olives. Jesus would pray a sleepless, anxious night at Gethsemane. He would be betrayed, handed over to be beaten. His closest followers would abandon him. He would be crucified and then raised three days later. And before all that, 
he sings, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper, I will look in triumph on my enemies. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Jesus sang before the darkest suffering. Jesus is able to fully worship because of the joy set before him, beyond the suffering, like we see in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The coming suffering he walked through with joy because he saw beyond it. The power of his death and resurrection, the good news of our gospels, we have been grafted in. Our sins forgiven, we are adopted into the family of God. Sons and daughters forever. Of no doing of our own. We cannot earn this. We do not deserve this. It is unbelievable grace. Unbelievable mercy. It's the good news of our gospel. And then we see in James the call for us then. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In the face of our suffering, pure joy. God is in the business of redeeming and transforming us, and he wastes nothing. Beauty from ashes. All of our stuff, our pain, our heartache, in and through our suffering will be used in this lifetime and beyond it. We have hope. In Revelation 7, we get this picture of heaven. It says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb, that's Jesus, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where we cannot see, where we don't have perspective, we can trust that God knows what he's doing. We know how this thing ends. Lean into me. Lean into me. I got you. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so good. You're so worthy of our worship. God, you know our hearts. You know what's on our heart and our mind right now and all the places where we hold suffering, where we have questions, where we're real unsure about a lot of this stuff. Where we have what we don't want, we want what we don't have, or we are crushed or confused. We place all of that before you now. Thank you that you are near, you draw near, you pursue us, you love us, you delight in us. You're with us, and you reign above it all, and you're a good king. You have perspective we don't. God, we pray that our momentary afflictions will be used for your glory. We ask that you would redeem them on this side of heaven. If you are here and you've never trusted Jesus, but you want to, you can pray this. Pray with me. God, I need you. I want to live this life with you. I want to lean into you. 
I receive your forgiveness and mercy and grace. I put my trust in you now. You are good God. We love you. Amen. Amen. As we end, I think we have an opportunity to bring our hearts and our voices to God through the landscape of our circumstances. For some, the circumstances you're facing are heavy. Like you would say, yes, I am in a season of suffering. And it's a unique season that's requiring a fresh kind of trust. If you recognize that and you want to trust him in it, if that's you, we want to sing over you in that place. So if you're in that place where you need to declare your trust, I'm going to invite you to come to the front in a moment for the next song. It's really a change of posture for you. It's a moment between you and God that says, I'm offering my heart to you through this. We won't make it weird, okay? It's just going to be one song where you can come up to the front. When it feels heavy and hard for you, there's a church, a gathering of people who get to hold that with you, to declare over you the truth of God's promise, his character, his nearness. So as a way of coming around those who are suffering, if that's not you and you're not responding today, I want to invite you actually to sing over the people who do respond, to declare all those things, to pray all those things as we sing this next song. So if you'll stand with me now, if there's something you want to trust the Lord in, as I do in my situation, I'm going to respond. I'm coming to the front. So if there's something you want to trust the Lord in, you can come even now and respond.
even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, Waymaker. darkness, my God, that is true. Trust the sweetest friend, 
for a benediction, I want to pray over you, really, it's Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, joy and peace and overflowing hope over you. Our prayer team is going to be coming now. If you have something you want prayer over, it's good. They're good people. Come and take advantage of that. They would love to pray alongside of you. And as we end, like we're ending most um, of our series, this series, we're going to sing the doxology. And I want to sing it actually with just our voices, if that's okay. So let's sing this together. And then after that, you guys will be released. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son. Amen. Bless you. Take care. We'll see you next week.